Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Good evening and welcome to this special episode. I'm Travis Dow, and today I'm here with Steve Guerra from the History of the Papacy podcast, and I'm from the History of Germany podcast. And now there's a reason why we decided to get together today, because in the History of Germany, I'm talking about the, the time of Henry IV and then Henry V. That's next episode. I just covered Conrad II and Henry III. So this is all coming up very quick. This is this is chronologically we're in about the right place. And where that is, we're talking about the 11th century. And um, yeah, there's a reason why both of us got together. The word the word Holy Roman Empire will, will give you a clue. But uh, Steve, yeah, why don't you break it down? What are we what are we actually going to talk about? Well, this is a really great time in history. I think it's one of my most favorite uh, times in history. We're going to cover a couple of different points today. We're going to talk about why the Holy Roman Empire became so decentralized, like much more so than France or England. We'll talk about how the Kaisers or the Holy Roman Emperors held power over their nobility with a close church relationship. And how we'll, we'll also talk about how um, the church didn't like that relationship. We're, we'll talk about uh, how feudalism really developed in Germany and the Holy Roman Empire. We're gonna have, we'll talk a little bit more about how um, those terms are a little loose and mm-hmm. they overlap. And then um, this is really this episode's interesting because I'm not quite at the 11th century, but the seeds of this investiture controversy really start with something called the Byzantine papacy, which started way back in the 500s, 600s, and will eventually uh, bear their fruit in the 11th and the 12th century. And all those things all connect through the papacy and the Holy Roman Empire. So there's a lot of different threads that all come together right here. Yeah, I I think... um to truly get a grasp on the political aspects of the Vatican on, on the one side in the Middle Ages, one needs to also kind of grasp the significance of the Pope's relationship with that that German Kaiser, the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And so um, we got together for this one, and I'll start out with a quick definition of what the this whole thing of the investiture controversy is, and. Um, I'll just I will I'll try and keep this as short as possible so that we can really go into the detail of it in the mm-hmm. episode. So the really really short story of the investiture controversy is all about who has the right or the authority to make people bishops and that's really it. Yeah. But there's a lot more obviously. <laughs> bishops yeah. were really incredibly powerful figures. They had vast religious powers along with civil powers and access to immense wealth. You could be the bishop of say, you know, somewhere in the Holy Roman Empire 
and you would have access to trade and uh, secular mm-hmm. powers of um, criminal justice powers, and you'd also have the religious authority in that area. So you can see why different um, stakeholders would want control of who's going to become mm-hmm. that powerful position. Uh, technically speaking, the controversy was over who actually officially bestowed the staff and ring of office to a bishop. That was called investing the bishop. Yeah, and um, there's heavy religious undertones to that investing too. You can't you can't separate those two when we're talking about like the 11th century. That religious and secular. There's no the lines between those are so blurred. It's uh, you know they're all, almost essentially the same thing. In practical terms, this controversy boiled down to who was able to select bishops and elect them and who did the bishop owe homage to in the feudal food chain. Mm -hmm. So like we said, you can see why the popes, emperors, kings all wanted to control who got those plush jobs. And just to give you like a bigger um, idea of this, investiture played out all across Europe. It was big time in England and France and the Holy Roman Empire, but we're just going to primarily focus in on the Holy Roman Empire today. Right. Yep. Uh, one one reason for focusing on the Holy Roman Empire is um, if, you, if you're not listening to the history of Germany, that, and that's okay, um, it, it's because the, the German Empire, the German Kingdom, went out and kept conquering northern Italy up until Rome, all the way back to Charlemagne. Charlemagne really started this tradition. But once they had Rome, then Rome was in, in their realm, which means uh, the Pope would then crown them emperor. And with Charlemagne being the first one of this long line of... of uh, uh, well, German Kaisers went back to Charlemagne, even if it wasn't unbroken, perhaps. But um, yeah, so so Germany does have this weird relationship. And if the Kaisers and Pope's relationship hadn't gone the way it did, then it would also be different for, for England and France and all that. So um, that's, that's yeah, it, it's all crucial to kind of understanding Europe as a whole. We're basically talking about the 11th and 12th century. Um, the conflict ends, you could say, in 1122 when he- Emperor Henry the V and Pope Calixtus II agree agree on the Concordat of Worms. But that's so that's jumping all the way till, until the end. But just so you realize, we're in the High Middle Ages and in, in the you know 11th and 12th century. And in the last history of Germany, I ended with Henry the Third and the Papal Schism, which. We'll definitely mention, we'll, we'll kind of define that because that's a part of the, the, these two things were just like a couple generations apart and had the same causes and same roots. Um, long story short, East and West no longer held a common communion. That's, that's still in effect, right? I mean, that, that schism still holds in a way. Yeah, they've, um, um, but, they've kind of smoothed it over a little bit, but they're no, yeah. still not in communion. Yeah, I think they're... There, there's political relationships between the two, so they they talk and this and that, but but yeah, there's no common communion still, and and this goes all the way back. You you have to listen to the history of papacy to get all this full background. Now, um, this goes all back to the sixth and seventh centuries, really when the papacy couldn't rely on Byzantine help directly for military protection. So there was already, you know, there was already some strife, and well, if you can't protect us militarily, what good are you? Then you add just the power struggle of who is the head of the church, that kind of thing. But um, one thing that is important to note is that the papacy 
really did need a secular institution to back them up. And right at this time, in come the Franks as Catholic Christians. This sort of changes things and the protector of the church title. This is a, a title really seriously first given to Charles Martel. This becomes a token of imperial power, like Holy Roman part of the empire. They, these German Kaisers really, at least um, politically and for propaganda reasons, really set themselves across or, you know, put themselves across as these Roman emperors. Um, you know, they even rule Rome. So, you know, that that's the whole idea behind the word Kaiser. It comes from Caesar, that kind of thing. Yeah, so so what you'll notice in the previous several History of Germany episodes, I did a whole mini-series on the Saxon dynasty, and now we're coming to the Salians. The Saxons, they really defined this Kaiser-Pope thing. Uh, Henry, there was one Henry that was, um, he's a saint. I mean, he was he was canonized by the church. So the, 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 they would um, donate a lot of money and land. But like you said, this is what gave bishops secular power. Uh, especially in Germany, I would say, and and you just really didn't want to, you did not want to make the bishop mad. He had power over all as aspects of your life, from tithing to taxes to you know court. Um, didn't matter if it was secular or or religious um, crime. Let's say you, you just had to you had to deal with the bishop. Um, Henry the Third, my last episode in history of Germany. You almost see a 50-year civil war within the empire during the Salian dynasty. Um, and it, it doesn't really get restored until the next dynasty, the Hohenstaufens, because the Pope starts backing a Saxon anti-king, Rudolf, in a revolt in um, Henry IV's reign. So the Pope picks sides politically in the Holy Roman Empire. So the the power struggle is real. It, this is this Pope uh, Kaiser thing is is a fascinating thing that I've been spending episodes now, kind of trying to get to the bottom of. Yeah, they have to work together, but they don't necessarily want to yeah. work together, and that's a relationship that built up. When Justinian, basically with Christianity up until that point, until about the fall of the Western Roman Empire in the late 400s, the church and the state, it was really the bishop worked with the emperor, and that worked pretty well. And it continued mm -hmm. to work fairly well in the eastern part of the Roman Empire that went go kept on going. But mm -hmm. in Italy, when you have the Germanic groups like one after another after another come in, and most of them aren't Catholic Christians at that point, they're Arians. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes they work together, sometimes they didn't work together, and they kind of worked out a plan. But it's when the Franks come in as Catholic Christians, yes. and they really rock all of Italy that's one interesting thing that I noticed. It's kind of out of the purview of both of our podcasts at this point, but how Germanic the nobility of Northern Europe or Northern Italy was. So yeah. many of so many of the great houses of um, Northern Italian, like Tuscany and Florence, they can really trace their all their lineage back to Germany. Even the the Medici that'll come around. Uh, probably about a hundred years or so after this, the Kelowna, all these families, they trace their lines back to German nobles, even though they had become Ital italicized yeah. by this point. 
I, I did a whole episode on the Lombards just because I think that little story is so interesting. And um, yeah, they, they basically trace their ancestors back to these Lombard noblemen. And then Charlemagne conquered them and took the iron crown of the, the kingdom of Lombardy. And I mean, it was just this, um, well, also very romanticized event. But it is, but romanticized by them themselves, like you said, even in the Renaissance. You know, they would, uh, these later Italian noble families would come and say, we, they would no longer claim authority from, from the Roman Empire, like Augustus's and Caesar's day. They would claim authority from the Lombard, you know, either royal family or, or noble families. So, yeah, very interesting that 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 that, that kind of happened and that that went that direction. Um, and, and I was curious, curious enough to kind of look into that a little bit. But in the Lombard episode, I was foreshadowing and a lot of the you know, I was foreshadowing to this because this is kind of where it all comes together and gets crystallized. And when these relationships really start to get set in stone, that's what we think of as the Middle Ages. I mean, that's what yeah. we can picture because this is the Catholic Church we all know today, in a way. This is where that starts. Yeah, definitely. This is the point where really history begins for Western yeah. Europe. Yes, exactly. Let's quickly look at the end, where we're going, before we start actually even start it and that's at the um, concordat of worms and this ends the investiture controversy almost there's still a little bit some lingering things but we'll get to that and mm -hmm. the church had more power you could almost say this is one of those situations where both of them really won the church and the holy roman empire won but they also lost too. It really set the separation of churches and state, or rather the separation of the duties of the church and the state. Um, it yeah. became more pronounced. The emperor had some, or the kaiser had some duties that were his, and the pope and the church had duties that were theirs, and they really didn't cross over very much anymore, where they were very mm -hmm. melded beforehand, which yes. was the which was the major problem. And a lot of that um, will jump into something that we're going to get into called the Gregorian reforms, which mm -hmm. really wanted to, they saw that there was something, um, what you could call almost in like legal terms was precedents had built up that didn't really follow. They didn't follow canonical law at all. And the Gregorians wanted to fix that or regularize that. So yeah, in the end, we can say this is a victory for the Pope, but not a complete victory. And we can also say it was a victory for the Emperor, but not a complete victory for him either. I, I think part of what makes it a victory for both is because I think that's totally true. It, they both kind of lost a little bit of power. But what makes it a victory is that the other one is no longer meddling. The, the, <laughs> the Kaiser does his secular affairs, and the local bishops have no more say in it. On the other hand, the Kaiser might not be able to say who those bishops are anymore. So, yeah, the, just the separation of duties thing is, is such a crucial thing. It's what we think of as, you know, when we think of feudalism and all that. It's, it's that. Um, yeah, so we do, we do start to see, you said this was muddled, and that's something to really emphasize in a way that, um, it, or it, it happens slowly that way. In the, in the 10th century, 100 years before what we're talking about, we have the Ottonian dynasty, the Saxons, Otto the Great. Um, in the middle of the 10th century, 
you could say that a lot of the church officials, not necessarily bishops, but you know, just anybody that had even even very secular political duties, were still of noble blood. The the first son would get the title of the duke, king, count, whatever, and then the second son would go to the church. In in German, there's a word "stift." It must be um, like a donation or something. Like the the king gives. Man, this was with Henry the First. He was a super pious. Um, gave a built a bunch of monasteries, and in German, that still has the word "stift" in the in the word. Like you'd say "stiftkloster," a a gift monastery. That means that the emperor. It was given to to the church by the emperor, and it was really. It was as a sign of forgiveness. It was kind of like a, a tithe on, in a way. and the, But the church got a lot of power. Um, but this is also in their own interest because now the second-born son would still have a comfortable life within the church. Sometimes, especially in, in these Ottonians uh, day, they would, it would just be a stone throw away from the castle, from the older brother, let, you know, practically yeah. speaking. Um, so you have the, the older brother's castle and the monastery right next door. And the monastery actually serves for defense also in a lot of these little towns. And now, given that, and, and you know, emperors using bishop seats as a way to control power, um, as a way to keep their power, you know, you give it to the right person. Um, I believe that's what simony is, <laughs> but, but now, or you sell it in a way. But now you, now you give that situation a few generations, let that stew and evolve. Okay, now it gets really convoluted. Um so where are the loyalties? Because, yeah, the bishop was clearly loyal to you when he was your your second-born so- son um, or when he was your brother. Okay, now a few generations, you know, keeps going. Now the church has their monasteries. But now that guy, that bishop, he's more like your third cousin. So things change. And now maybe the emperor puts somebody else on the... Uh, give somebody else that county or or dukedom, and now you're not related to the pope anymore. So so here we go. This is where all the the convoluted um, stuff happens. I think it's probably um, a, a good idea to uh, define what an abbot is as opposed to a bishop, because oh, yeah. that um, abbots are a high ranking religious position, but they're actually kind of like, I guess you would say they're the manager of a monastery. Mm -hmm. And monasteries by this point are no longer 10 guys living in a hovel somewhere praying. These have become gigantic estates. They're basically uh, manors, and they're very Mm -hmm. wealthy. And Mm -hmm. A bishop is the high-ranking religious figure for a geographic area. So an abbot could be inside of a bishop's um, bishopric, for mm-hmm. if you will. But they're not exactly, because of the, the different ways relationships had developed over the course of 300 or so years, abbots didn't necessarily completely answer to the bishop of their geographic locality like it wasn't a direct the bishop wasn't that abbot's direct manager anymore that abbot could more like a matrix a dotted line to to rome or somewhere else yeah really interesting yeah especially since like you were saying that a king or a duke or really anybody could found a monastery and have an abbot placed in there who's actually owes really more to that duke than mm-hmm. they do to anybody else. Yep. yep. In, a, in practical terms, we're talking here about legally who do they 
owe their homage to and who do they really practically owe it to are oftentimes quite different. I think we can start off with the the big heading, the more background, the schism of 1054. And I, I would just kind of mention, well, yeah, this is definitely related and this, this will paint a bigger picture, but we're just going to mention this in passing. And if you want, you can do a, a plug for, because I'm, I'm sure you're going to come back to this on your show too, the schism of, of a 1054. And, and, and one more thing to, to give a little better context or to, to give a little more background um, because we did, we did bring up the schism in the beginning and, and there's a reason for that. And yeah, just in, 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 in real short, basically the church in Rome had to deal with two factors before the schism, which was they shared power with the Byzantines and they shared power with the Holy Roman empire. So, but there's more than one schism. We call this the great schism, but, um, there's another reason we're lucky to have Steve here because, what is I mean? There's there's other schisms. So what are some of the backgrounds of schisms? Why? What what's going on here? For our discussion today, I think the big takeaway theme is that major problems were developing between Rome and Constantinople in the religious sphere. There was a lot of and really in the in the generally culturally they were starting to separate and. In um, there was a lot of problems that actually, if you listen to my show, you'll get to hear a little bit about because we're just about entering this. And something occurred called the Acacian Schism for a lot of different reasons. But that was a big break between Rome and Constantinople, and that lasted about uh, 40, 50 years-ish. And they Mm -hmm. came back together. But these issues never really got solved. Something called the filioque way comes up, these cultural differences, differences in practice, and really just that gulf, there wasn't a lot of reason to bridge the gulf anymore as the Mm -hmm. West and the papacy became tied more to the Franks and the Germans. Um, Yeah, and... and I, I, that's that's really it. I think that that gives us. I mean, it's just really to note that this was happening in the time period. I just mentioned it in the previous episode, Henry the Third. I just said, by the way, this is happening. This is he's the you know he's the the, the his last pope was Leo the Ninth, and, and you know that's the Great Schism. So, um, but yeah, now this is now we're talking a little bit after the Great Schism. This really freed the Catholic Church from any remaining Byzantine influence. So now they can just do their own thing. Um, yeah, I just, I in passing mentioned the Gregorian reforms and all that because I just said, the, uh, by the way, this is the Pope. He, and then I, I would like, okay, he's pro-Gregorian, he's anti-Gregorian, but that, that's it. Like that was just, that was in, uh, it must have been Henry III. Just to even show you how Frankish and how German the papacy had gotten by that point in about the the year 1000, there was a cardinal named Humbert, and he was actually the one who officially declared, I guess, the excommunication on the Eastern Church, even though he really wasn't technically supposed to be um, supposed to have done that. He wasn't he didn't have the authority to do that. But. He um, also was very, very involved in the Gregorian reforms and with actual Gregory VII, the person who these reforms are named after. So this guy was just connected to 
everything. And you even hear in that name, Humbert. He was born in Italy, but obviously under a um, Germanic, mm-hmm. Frankish uh, cultural milieu, if you will. Yep. One of the big, big, big reforms of the Gregorian reforms was something against simony, which is all it is, is the buying and selling of ecclesiastical offices. The short story with that is you're just not supposed to do it. Mm -hmm. There's a process for electing bishops or choosing abbots and offering it to the highest seller isn't actually one of those uh, qualifications. That's kind of like one of the definition of what we think of as corruption today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, absolute corruption. There was popes who bought their bought their papacy and then sold it and then bought it back again. I mean, it was a really big mess in the 900s or so. And a new group of churchmen came up and were like, all this stuff has to end. So now these these other factors are coming in with the Holy Roman Empire. They want to have their say in things. So you're wealthy. Let's just buy uh bishopric for my son and it'll pay for itself in the end even if i have to pay a ton of money for it you know it's a it's a good um return on investment that's almost the way to look at these things that they were financial agreements they were the startups of the uh 11th century you buy a bishopric it might cost you a fortune and you might have to go to an investor to and take on debt but in the long run it's going to pay for itself it's a license to make money i think they even did coin money yeah and and you yeah also some of these especially the monasteries in this time monastery it was it was relatively speaking compared to like the 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 village next to them the monastery was a very productive it was like a manufacturing center you know in very small quantities of what we'd think of today but you'd have the brewery you'd have uh, them curing meats and making cheese and um you know having little just all kinds of little industrious little things it was a thriving part of the economy not a minor, you know, insignificant part either. So, yeah, if not literally printing money, then definitely it, <laughs> printing money, so to speak. Because, yeah, it was, it was, you know, you can buy the position and then there's just money coming across your desk. So Yeah, it was essentially staffed by people who all their job was was to create stuff. Mm-hmm. goods that mm-hmm. could be sold could be you know just works, by having sleep prey and and yeah. uh, the abbot sits on top of all that you know if you have a community with 50 people who their whole life is about either praying or working you know, they're that they're just producing all day Sound, sounds like a podcaster i know that's weird <laughs> <laughs> does oh. that podcaster have um Groups of people sitting in a dark room. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just okay. Record. Don't you don't come out of here. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, there there were some other issues. Yeah. So and so so the the reforms were on one side corruption, and on the another issue, and this is something we don't really think about today, perhaps, is uh, the way that the the. The church worked at the country parish level was very different than at the cathedral, deanery, and and you know bishop level. Uh, parish priests married had and 
you know, after passing away, leaving their church, their responsibility, and their priesthood to their sons was common. We don't, we definitely don't think of a priesthood being inherited because that just doesn't make any sense. It's mutually exclusive. Um, but the parish priest, the one that actually would, you know, take care of the local congrega- congregation, he could be compared to the small town cobbler or, or blacksmith in a way. And I'll say one extra thing. And I, I mentioned on another show um, this must have been under the Saxons. I can't remember. Oh, actually, I, I think I mentioned this on the. Yeah, this was a Franking. This is a Frankish problem already. So, at least two centuries ago, where um, and the the church already complained then, which is if you have second sons going into being abbots, or if you have a priesthood being inherited without actually going to proper schooling, the, the so the situation actually happened where you would have. I could swear this is a Frankish story, but but um, you would have people, um, priests in front of mass who could barely get through the Latin mass. They definitely wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be able to speak any Latin beyond that. Like they just kind of memorize those words. Maybe you don't even know what that means. But and oftentimes you find that they didn't even, they couldn't even muddle the way, their way through mass. So it's just this really sad affair of this guy standing up front and chanting and you know latin sounding gibberish or something for a few minutes and then um you know doing the communion thing and then getting out of there like just to to do the the very least of well he inherited this position and this was a complaint um now take a couple of centuries of that and it all really starts coming together gregory the seventh and all these reforms yeah, so Gregory the Seventh was a bit more realistic. This this realpolitik, if you will, involved a stance of the emperor rules through providence, like through God's will. So you know the papacy once invested, they even they couldn't touch the emperor. Although, well, <laughs> we'll see about that. Um, but but basically, the emperor conquered Rome so many times. You know, how can the Pope claim divine will if the Pope is is praying to defend Rome in a way? So, I mean, it's just, yeah, the Pope rules become the emperor's will, not God's. And and so there's just this whole, again, a schism between between Kaiser and Pope. There's just this disconnect between um, if you were a layman at the time and you saw this happening. Well, I mean, many, many a satire was written, let's say. It was just really um, tough to, to look at the church in a, in a non-corrupt, in a, you know, godly sort of way. So, moving on, Gregory Seventh, you know, that's happening in 1075. This is just the beginning. So, the Gregorian reforms, this is just the spark of the investiture controversy. It's just getting started. All those things, all those problems you mentioned, Travis, about... Um problems in uh, liturgicals without knowing latin and that's those are in celibacy at the parish level those were just all things that the gregorians wanted to completely stamp out Mm -hmm. there was also the power of the pope and bishops of saying well different monarchs at different times had claimed or were given the title vicar of christ and after the Gregorians, they oh, the popes right. jealously guarded that title. They were the only vicar or representative of God on earth. There was no more of this um, kings and emperors getting their power divinely at yeah. this point. The popes wanted to put an absolute end to that. Yes. Um, yeah, there's a couple of—I I definitely talk about that on the show— 
Oh, I, I think exactly. Yeah, what what I said here in the in the 12th century is where we really get the idea. Uh, this is a we all we've all heard this, even if not consciously, we all know this idea. This comes from the high Middle Ages, which is that it's the 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 emperor's job or even the king's job to create peace on earth. That is his mm-hmm. one job. Um, defense and, you know, hold the peace, even if that's court and this and that, but it's peace on earth. This was actually, so this is, this is from that. This is like from that, you know, what does the Kaiser actually do? What does the Pope actually do? And what does, you know, how do we, um, and it, and it was a mutually beneficial relationship. So the, uh, Kaiser, it was him. This just came up in the last episode. It was the Kaiser's best interest to make sure that the Pope was elected from the people, like the people of Rome itself, the city that they were happy, and the Italian nobility was happy, and a majority of the German nobility was happy with all agreed on this one Pope. That was in the Kaiser's interest. Why? Mm-hmm. Because it would be that Pope that would crown him Kaiser. So, <laughs> um, if you want to have a rebellion really fast, put any Pope you want on the throne and then have that Pope, you know, call in. Uh, crown you uh, emperor that's a good way to get the whole you know to have an uprising instantly that's that's a, that's an old roman thing of just having the the your local guard your local army call you caesar you know and then everybody else doesn't agree with that so it was definitely so every you know it was in the kaiser's best interest to eventually just kind of let that let the pope be chosen by the people but also make sure that he was on good terms with the pope so because he does need that crown so yeah, it's um it's an interesting complicated relationship. Those Gregorians too, those reformers, they wanted to take the selection of the pope completely out of any secular politics. And yeah. that's where we get into the College of Cardinals. There had been cardinals to some degree or another almost going back almost to the beginning, but this the point where the College of Cardinals elect a pope in the conclave is really developing right at about this time. I was going to mention, you did a show on the early history of the College of Cardinals already. Yeah, um, if you go back, you can see that that one, and there again, we get into the point where these are really high-ranking bishops who are closely aligned to the pope, and they're the more or less the pope is always going to come out of their ranks, it's very rare going forward that a pope is not one of the cardinals before that. Mm-hmm. And now it's not even possible for a pope yeah. to come out. So that's really been cemented down. And um, yeah, it just, again, it kind of keeps a little bit of control on you can't have an, uh, someone out of left field and you can't have an emperor just saying, my sons. So <laughs> Henry III put four popes on, you know, sent four popes to the Vatican. So there was a lot of Germans in the Vatican, uh, you know, uh, w- Bishop of Bamberg and, and who knows what, just a bunch of, of uh, German titles, counts and whatnot that became, you know, Clement II and and Leo the Ninth, and um, that was that might have gone too far. That might have been one of the the pushing factors. Is like we've had enough of this. Let's you know select from this pre-selected pool. We know all of these people are okay. Let's pick one of these people. Yeah, it all it all really makes sense if you get the the big picture of of what the Kaiser was doing and why. So. 
this is also the really early genesis of something that will start. I didn't, I'm just adding this right now. I read about it yesterday and didn't have a chance to update it. But this is the really early um, part where we get to see in northern Italian politics the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. They were, um, oh, yes. I always get them confused, but the Guelphs were loyal to the emperor and the Ghibellines were more um, disposed towards the Pope. Yeah. And that's going to be the driving force of northern Italian politics for hundreds of years. And it will get so convoluted. There'll be different factions of Ghibellines that are exactly opposed to each other. And there'll be factions of Guelphs and sub-factions. And that's going to get very interesting. There's there's a lot of great because um, this this Italian these Italian feuds, I I just like here and there mention them in passing because even in Rome you'd have and it's family based you'd have a, uh you know family for this pope and this family for the anti pope mm-hmm. and um, I mentioned even in Venice yeah I mentioned a, a, a there was a one of the German Kaisers was besieging Venice and there, one of the families was pro-Byzantine, the other family was pro-Rome and you saw the same divide but but this is a famous one the, the northern Italian um, yeah, some of those feuds are, are just, wow <laughs> castles get bigger and, and it's, it's I mean this is you know, eventually all the, the, these northern Italian states break up into these little city-states that we then see in the Renaissance, even though they're still part of the Holy Roman Empire but there's a lot of animosity just internally, and there's a there's a lot of fortifications between your neighbors and that that sort of thing. I mean, you can call that those politics were the ultimate Byzantine politics. I mean, the Byzantine yeah. Empire wasn't as Byzantine as Northern yeah. Italian politics. Yep, that's um, yeah. I <laughs> Italy's a great place. <laughs> I, I when I was in Naples, there, there, you know, the the. Um, we were talking to the waiter because the restaurant was just dead, which is a bad sign. But we were talking to the waiter and he says it was like the one guy that spoke English. And he said that even like even to this day, this is Naples, this is southern Italy and southern Italy is, is it's a whole nother country. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said to this day, you still like he, you don't get a job like he got this job because his cousin owns the restaurant. It's still, you know, your family, family is yeah. is your economic uh, guarantee there's there's zero mer- meritocracy in Naples. I mean that's a stereotype. That's you know not obviously not always true, um, but it is a weird city because it really does seem like everybody simony simony <laughs> rages rampant. Everybody got their job because of who they know. Uh, relationship basis is it's all about networking and and um, as funny as that is or maybe as disrespectful as that is I don't know but but in northern Italy I mean you, you do see this it's it's all about who you know your connections and um, your family structure so yeah it's a it is a good point to make this is where a lot of that we see that and it just it just strengthens from here so if you go on to like um wikipedia or google images and look at like the palazzos of these famous families that they built their mansions at about this time in a place like florence they're in the middle of the city but they are a castle in the middle of the city because across that um across that uh village square it's another castle or something they're right across the road from each other it's 
yeah. and that's your deaf enemy is right yep. across the waist. They would live on the upper floors, and the bottom floors were defensible. They were designed for defense. It's much less so, I think, in places like Rome. I don't remember. That's I've never been to northern Italy, but um, that was that's not like the defining feature of a city like Rome, where there's these mm-hmm. castles built right into the city, where places like Tusk. Um, Florence and Siena, those places are armed camps. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, riots, when riots broke out into the street, then the, the family feuds would just flare up every single time. There, there was, it was defense, but it was, it was defensive of internal, just like, okay, oh, the people, oh, there's a mob forming. It's literally like, it's defense against pitchforks and that kind of thing. Um, but but yeah, there was. I mean, it was just all kinds of fascinating drama Faction, just right in yeah. the cities. I mean, and, we and could even... really like inward gazing. They weren't looking at you know. That's why they became city states because they were just all focused on who's running this town. Um, the next town over, they have their own issues and families. Um, yeah, until Florence takes over Milan, and I mean, just all this stuff. But yeah. Um, control myself because there's just, it's just so great to those, those northern Italy is just fascinating. It's just so <coughs> weird and crazy. Um, and it's, that today that's that's but just like you said, you're walking on in a in an old town square, and um, there's just all these towers around, and it's just magnificent. But the reason is because they hated each other. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a movie, a modern movie. I forget who the actors' names are, but there's like two mafia bosses, and they both live in skyscrapers across from each other, and they they're both they basically never leave the top floor, but they used to be partners, and now they look <laughs> at each other through bulletproof glass and spy. You know, I forget. It's maybe from the '90s. I don't remember, but well done. And uh, it just, I just, it reminded me of of that so much. Um, there, yeah, I think there's that one. There's a town. It might be Siena where every single building has a tower that they're all trying to just be a little bit taller than the next, mm-hmm. so they can peek into the next uh, villa. It's in, it's absolute insanity. Yep. Oh, it's a it's a status symbol too. Yeah, if you're the tallest tower in town. You know, you get mentioned. You walk in like, oh, the tower, the tallest tower is the Medici family. You know, that's just something. Oh yeah. So yeah. yeah anyway, a- yeah, th- yeah. We could. <laughs> this is great stuff. Uh, I think there must be a lot of this on the Italian unification. Some of this background, some of the cultural stuff. The the the, the podcast. That's a great podcast, by the way. <laughs> the Italian unification. Um, they they talked a lot about why he was so splintered. And yeah, the Italian unification, we're now, you know, that's 1860. So that's, um, yeah, this happens for quite some time. Like you said, Naples and southern Italy was a completely different country from central Italy and the Papal States, which Mm -hmm. was a completely separate. And I'm saying country, not like in the Westphalian sense of country with passports, like cultural and language, that if you were a Southern Italian, chances are you couldn't even speak with someone who was from Central Italy. Yes, exactly. Um, When they unified, what they learned in school was basically a, a standardized version of Milanese Italian. So those those people in, in Naples, they resented that quite a bit to have to learn Milanese Italian in school. But uh, in 1860, that's that's who had by far the most economic power and they just kind of, you know, got their way. So 
that there is no such thing as an Italian if you ask someone like the language if you ask someone from southern Italy they they'll speak speak uh, you know not not a, what Napolitano yeah <laughs> not Napoleon I want to keep, I keep yeah. wanting to say Napoleon <laughs> but yeah. uh, ne- even because it's Neapol yeah Neapol even to this day, people who um, say emigrate emigrate from Italy to the U.S. or something like that, and if they weren't formally schooled, their mm-hmm. Italian is so different from other places. Mm-hmm. It's really until you become formally schooled that you'll learn the the Italian language that everybody understands. Yeah, and and in fact. Fun fun fact, that's why Northern Italy is often covered by the History of Germany podcast, whereas I never talk about Southern Italy, really, and Southern Italy is covered in the um, uh, 12 Norman Rulers. What's the, what's the name? It's a f- great podcast, but it's the Norman history, because the Normans come down and uh, conquer half of it. You'll, you'll hear the Southern part, like Sicily, for instance, and, and just the toe of the boot. You'll hear that mentioned in the history of the Crusades, maybe, or, you know, like history of, of, of Islam, because and that was like Muslim ruled that. So even today, when we break up our podcasts, there's Italian unification that needs to be its own thing. And then there's, you know, I, co- I just end up covering bits and pieces of the Northern part and um, you know the southern part's Norman. That's totally different. That you know, these are like Vikings coming to France, coming from France to southern Italy. That's a totally different thing. So then don't even get um, started yeah, on just, Venice. Just, and then there's the history of the papacy in the middle. I mean, we you know. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> yeah. You have a lot um, of listening to do out there. Yeah. Well, the history of Rome. He did. He, Mike Duncan covered it all. To be fair, it, yeah. the, geographically. Then, but he stopped in the year, you know, whatever, four seventy five. So, um, yeah. No, Italy's a fun place for sure. We've talked a lot about the background, and we're building up. And let's talk about how the Kaiser was deposed in ten seventy five. That's a huge, yeah. uh, monumental event in this whole uh, drama here. Yeah, th- this will be the focus of the next history of Germany because it's a doozy of a story. But uh, 1075, Pope Gregory VII, he composes the Dictados Pepe, uh, Pape, I guess, the, the papal dictation. That's not what that is. But it's a clause that's, that's asserted that um, the only person who could ever depose a Kaiser, which if you read into this, um, meaning the only person higher than a Kaiser or emperor is the Pope. So a Pope could rule that the Kaiser was not put there by God because the, 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 the Pope might have this, this knowledge or this authority to, to say so. And so the, the Pope could actually depose him. It just like the, the Kaisers fought long and hard to be able to, 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 you know, insist on the, on the right, so to speak. But now it's really just tradition and precedence that um, the Pope, you had to become crowned Kaiser, Emperor, by the Pope. The Archbishop uh, could, of Mainz could crown you King of Germany in Aachen, sure. And you can put the Archbishop there, but the, you have to come down to Rome. You have to do what Charlemagne did. You have to come down to Rome and be crowned Emperor by the Pope. So the Gre- Gregory VII... He he put down the 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 brought it back to the moral foundation that or the you know even the canonical like biblical thing like guys the the Roman Church this was founded by God alone um, 
which means the authority comes through the Pope alone, you know, from, from St. Peter on down, that whole thing. The, the idea of universal power, of like the, the highest power on this planet, that, that's, you know, trying to really set that in stone. Um, yeah, and then this is the, the big one that we've been, been talking about is a council held over four days then came out with the announcement that, okay, only a pope alone could appoint or depose churchmen or move them from sea to sea. And this was very controversial. Henry IV, this is the focus of the episode, episode he does not like this. Uh, this was a, a child emperor that had all power stricken, fr- stripped from him. That's how that kind of happened. But now he was old enough, and he, and he was a neat personality. Um, but he now came to power and, and tried to ignore the church in Rome and tried to appoint his own bishops. And there was harsh words said. And Gregory Seventh. long story short... And Gregory VII excommunicates Henry, and he says, Henry, king not through usurpation, but through the holy ordination of God to Hildebrand, at present, not pope, but false monk. That's what Henry was calling Gregory. And um, this was, yeah, really harsh words. And this kind of... So he gets gets excommunicated, and there's this very famous... um, well, yeah, bad bad things happen um, during during this thing. He's he's not officially the king anymore. German, like he he excommunicates Henry and says, "Oh, and by the way, I'm also rescinding your German king crown, not the imperial one, but the the king." And so, really, anybody in Germany at this point, there's there's no like technically, you don't have to see the the Kaiser as a Christian anymore. Which means any nobility, you don't you don't have to see any of his authority at all. I mean, when when he deposes him as a king or even excommunicates him, um, that really is stripping a lot of power, at least theoretically. But but of course, in 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 reality, a lot of noblemen are loyal to Henry. So this is, yeah. I mean, this turns really ugly. Some nobility do take advantage of this. And I'll get into this um, in the next in the history of Germany episode. There's there's a battle fought. There is a you know civil war uprising, so to speak. And this is this is great. I'm gonna um, really try to try to write this out and and find, I'm looking for for some good German sources um, to kind of describe. Now we have. Um, Let's see, Conrad II, Henry III were the high point of imperial power of all time. In um, the Holy Roman Empire, I gave a date, 1039, okay, was the, where the emperor was, he was, uh, he, he was a duke of Bavaria, Swabia, and Carinthian, Carinthia, and he was a triple king of Burgundy, Italy, and Germany. Now, just some less than 40 years later... There's a really famous story called, like, The Road to Canossa because uh, the, the Pope was in Canossa and uh, Henry IV crosses the Alps in a hair shirt. This is uh, Brusahemt. What's that in England? A, a repentance robe. Is that what that's called? It's like if you're, if, you're, if you're trying to, you know, repenting for your sins, then you wear this really uncomfortable garment on a pilgrimage to a holy site. And, you, and in his case, I mean... It's written that he went on hands and knees. He he 
crept, he he crawled on the in this hair shirt and stood in the snow barefoot. In the, and this is middle of the winter and everything. Um, this is known as the walk to Canossa. And Gregory, I guess his heart melted. That's the romanticized version of the story. I don't know. I don't know if you have any additional insight to this. This is what I'm trying to figure out is because the story is amazing. I want to find out how much of it's true. You, you, you know, from the height of imperial power, his son is crawling over Alps in a hair shirt and standing barefoot in the snow. What, what happened? Um, but it works. Gregory lifts the excommunication. The, 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 that schism is mented. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, I guess you've, you've, you've heard of this story. Um, at least, I mean, you, you, at least, at least in passing, you know of it. And, um, they, both yeah, were any thoughts there? I mean, what's the, <laughs> they both were in such a tough spot at that point because Henry, mm-hmm had many of his nobles were on his back because they were siding with the pope but when it was all it was in a way it was humiliating for henry to do that but it was also a shrewd political move because if he went and completely repented to the pope then the pope had to give in when he went there and waited outside for three days some sources say that Gregory made it last three days because that's all he had was to make Henry uncomfortable for three days ah, okay. yeah. waiting. And yeah. that, that was his last play. Once Henry went to that point, then Gregory had to back down and give him absolution for it, um, yeah. his it just sins. It would have looked really bad if he didn't. The people, I guess, at that point were with Henry because they're like, oh, wow, he's really showing humility. Um his father, Henry IV, I describe him, uh, there's a, a couple times when his mother dies, when uh, in a battle in, in, right after a battle in, in Hungary, there's some relics in the battlefield. And each time he just lays flat on the floor, face down, and his arms stretched out. You know, he's kind of forming the, the shape of the cross. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, this is all romanticized and whatnot, but the but the sources do say that, you know, people there were moved to tears. And on the battlefield, he had everybody, his whole army do this. It, you know, lay fa- face down in the muck and arms, you know, spread out. And um, so they they showed these signs of of extreme piety i guess is is the right word but but they're also they're the holy roman emperor i mean they have to this this very well could be a a true political move and it very well could be nothing more you and i we just don't have that time machine we just don't know mm-hmm. um and this the, yeah the even if the sources are like, no, this was he was a pious man. Uh, uh, Henry II became canonized. We we don't know what, what went on in their minds. So, yeah, the only um, thing we can really look at is that in the political battlefield, Henry had pro papal supporters at his back in his court, and Gregory had pro imperial bishops. Mm-hmm that all had influence on the decisions that these two yeah. men had to make. And at some point it was really going to, it was, they were at an impasse. Nobody yeah, was going to be able yeah. to win so this people one. From both sides saying, come on guys, end this, get along. Yeah. I, I guess we're almost about to wrap this up. It, it, 
some some nobility did take advantage in Henry the Fourth's lifetime, which th- there's the Great Saxon Revolt. I'm going to talk about next next episode in history of Germany, and but this is the beginning of the end already. There's the investiture controversy along with the Gregorian reforms and all this starts to get set down and and the the peace treaty so to speak is the concordat of worms now this does not happen um immediately henry this is under henry the 4th's son time henry the 5th so henry the 3rd we have the great schism henry the 4th we have the walk to canossa and then henry the and the investiture controversy beginning and henry the 5th we have the end more or less and the concordat of, of worms um henry v so again he you know he invaded rome he and he set up his own anti-pope so he tried one more time to set these reforms back and and his anti-pope was gregory the eighth so really i mean that even just the name choice i think is a little bit of a uh, yeah. sticking it to gregory the seventh you know we're, we're gonna have this where he's gonna be the same name as you people are gonna get confused when people say gregory that i mean that kind of thing um, but they did sit down. Uh, the Concordat of Worms, one of the things was Henry V abandons his anti-pope. Yeah, Henry V surrendered to the demands of this second generation. So Henry V is Henry IV's son. So this has been going on for generations. Now, the, the second generation of reformers are now at the table. That's how long this has been happening, over 50 years. And they they finally you know they, this has been going on their whole lifetime so to speak and they just want they want to figure this out and, and so that's what happens. There's an immediate impact that the popes are going to have some say in who's selected at, as bishops in the Holy Roman Empire, and mm-hmm. the emperor is going to have some say. The civil, the emperor, or the civil secular government authority is going to invest them in some way, but really the pope is the main man. It's really, you could say at the at the very end of the Concordat of Worms that the emperor won, but in the long run, the pope gained a lot of power yeah not directly it's one of those things you can't say that at the concord concordat of worms that this happened because of what was um written into the agreement and this is what happened and this is what the pope got out of it it's really not that sort of thing it's the pope was freed from a lot of interference from emperors and dukes And that allowed the popes in the upcoming 100, 150 years to really stake their power. Now, they weren't always able to enforce it, but they always they were able to develop claims to primacy and supremacy from that point that later popes would continue to expand upon. It gave the popes a lot more freedom of maneuver yes. later on. To, to the degree I would I don't I don't I didn't write this down here but but in my other show I said um, because if you think about it so it was a very German church but oh you know maybe that is written here but but um, the 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 thing is is that by having this this fight and then official treaty with the with the emperor now you know you have. Spain eventually and uh, Portugal. This is a couple hundred years later. They're, they're Muslim at this point, um, but also France and also England. 
they're far more likely to accept this Catholic Pope now because at least, you know, until the Anglican Church and all that. But but for a while, uh, they're, 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 they do this because he's not under the thumb of the emperor. At least mm-hmm. he can, you know, they're, 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 he's independent enough. He can he can claim that. And you even see the emperor. Yeah, I mean, he he loses a lot of political power in northern Italy and and all of this that we talked, uh, you know, kind of mentioned in passing, I'd say. Um uh, which oh, is you thing. can say that because you kind of you kind of mentioned the cause, but um, feudalism happened because people were now looking for that secular lord to get protection from because now it's their job, and then you really see these free men, free you know, kind of becoming uh, peasants because that's yeah. This is all this is where it all comes together basically. <laughs> yeah, really one. When- when this whole that's how the holy roman empire shattered into swabia and nicia and nadia mm-hmm. and all these different um different principalities you can't call them states as such because that term really isn't appropriate right. at that point but the holy roman emperor is basically just a puppet put on top of all this you know they have to be they have to make so many compromises to be selected that -hmm. their power is just vastly diminished unlike in a place like france or england where the king is the king and it's just yeah there's differences between a french king's going to take a little bit longer time to coalesce that power but in time they will it's just at, by that point, it's not possible anymore for a Holy Roman Emperor to become a unified king. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I like so uh, I like th- you know looking at a map, looking at at something something like like the institution of the Catholic Church, or you, you know you look at one of those old maps from. Right before Napoleon, let's say 1810 of the Holy Roman Empire, and you see 1,100 or so principalities and, you know, fiefdoms practically. And you look at that and you ask why, you know, how could that happen? And the, you know, why, why are, why is everybody in South America, not everybody, why is the majority of, you know, South American countries, why are they very staunchly Catholic countries? Because... If this didn't happen, they might not be. They might have their own church. Isabella and and uh, you know those the the Spanish crowns of Castile and stuff. They might have had their own schism. I mean, you know, I don't speculate an alternative alternative history that much, but um, this is one of those. This is the answer to one of those questions of of the Catholic Church is the way it is because of this time period and and these events. And um, if you look at, you know, if you if you study feudalism and also if you study why was France different than Germany, then then here's your answer to some degree. And, um, you know, these really mixed uh, loyalties and and across boundaries and not, you know, geography not matching with your title. That's a very German thing that happens. And, um, yeah, you know, 1039 is when you saw the emperor having. He was the Herzog, the uh, um, not the uh, the Duke. He was the Duke of Germany. The, uh, the sorry, the Duke of Bavaria, Duke of Swabia. You don't see that anymore. He, you know, the, you don't see that direct power. Like you mentioned, there, there, the election process 
changes. So they they really are. They have to make campaign promises, basically, and then spend a lot of their time just fulfilling those or there's going to be a revolt. We definitely see in the Habsburgs that the nobility field the armies. The emperor asks them to do so. The emperor doesn't necessarily have his own army, or if he or he he, he would, but not. It wouldn't be a big part of the army. It might just be a few hundred men. So, and you see where um, where all the pieces of the puzzle are. They're all starting to drop in at this point. Where religiously. There's these reforms that are really setting what the what the ideal of Western Christianity is supposed to be, and exactly. different groups yep. are going to take plays on that. Like uh, somebody like Martin Luther, he didn't just drop out of a um, parachute from a different time and say this is going to be Protestantism. He took what he thought was the ideal, and he was making a statement on it about 400 yeah. years later after this. He, he literally he was, wanted to reform the Catholic Church. He, did, he didn't want a, another schism, you know? So, yeah, yeah exactly. He was, he was operating with inside of this framework. This is really where the, mm-hmm. the fence of Europe is built, of what Europe it was going to be. It's really coming from this time period right here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure, yeah, Luther's sources would have been some of these Gregorian reformers, some of those thoughts. Of, yeah, same, some of the same arguments, exactly. And um, the, fr- yeah. the, the Franciscans who are going to come around within about 75 years from now, somebody like Martin Luther probably essentially wouldn't have had many arguments if with the Franciscans. Mm-hmm. But they're all operating. The Gregorian reforms set the standard for what everyone thought that the church should be. Yes. Yes. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Even today, I don't think it, it doesn't matter if you're uh, what you think about the Catholic Church. But if you're wondering about why is it, you know, why does it look like that? Why, you know, if you walk into a church in Europe, why is it like this or like that? Or if you see these old monasteries, here's your answer. You know, this is, well, why is the monastery right downtown in this huge, well, you know, here's the answer. Um, yeah, they were, they were, now it, you really start to under feudalism um, we see this this notion of the separation of the warrior class the well okay the the warrior class who is the nobility actually and then the church and then the peasants this is that you had the, the three the three different classes and then mm-hmm. it gets complicated later only with merchants and this and that but they're still peasant class for a long time because at its very beginnings here there's just three there's the nobility there's the church and those are now fully defined and then there's everybody else and everybody else uh, organizes themselves under their local lord who's organized under their local count who's organized under their local frust or even arch there's still bishop princes and and things like this to, um it doesn't really go away it's still it, actually it's a lot of these same arguments of the gregorian reforms are brought up again by uh luther not so well luther yes but but i'm thinking of like the anabaptists where yeah. they're they're actually there's still the um the um first bishop that's like a prince yeah it's a prince bishop, prince bishop and, the, yeah. and the prince bishops also were electors of the holy roman emperor um what is it like there's like nine votes nine electors i i forget i'm gonna get in trouble for this but um or well it changes throughout time to be fair um but but it becomes you know the 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 bishop of Mainz is one of them and 
And so there's also some of these church people still electing um, the emperor within Germany. These are, these would be German bishops, but still, um, yeah, it's it's muddled. So Just it very, still stays muddled to some degree, let's say. And therefore, the, the the reformers, even Jan Hus and and all of those, could have very similar arguments to the to the Gregorian reforms. But it's the Gregorian reforms when we look at the Catholic Church and think. Um, why don't priests marry? Why why are you know uh, Protestant preachers have wives and kids? Why don't priests usually or ever uh, have a? Or why shouldn't they have have be married and have kids? Um, that comes back to this, and you know Luther famously Martin Luther famously married a nun, a former nun one, one should say, and he was a former monk. So the you know very interesting um, kind of thing. The 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 why do the Catholics do this or that or um, why you know why is the institution like this? Well, it, it goes back a thousand years, if not more. But this is here's some of the concrete answers for that. Yeah, it's a really interesting time, but it's a very confusing time. Yeah, yeah, trying to keep all the relationships straight. It's like okay, he's hating him because he's the great grandson of Otto the first, and the other guy's the great grandson of the Duke of Bavaria. Okay, right, and yeah, it just wow. I mean, uh, you you kind of I believe even if you lived there at the time, <laughs> you'd have to learn. Okay, why do we hate this family? Why do we not like the uh, you know the the, the Swabians <laughs> yeah, over there? Exactly. It just there's a lot of complicated stuff going on. Um, but that's what makes that's what makes for good stories. So oh, absolutely. Uh, that gives us plenty of fodder to talk about. So we're happy to really say the least. We have a lot more to talk about with this. We've only scratched the yeah. surface. Um, yeah. And like, like we've said now, th- this goes on for centuries. So the Concordat of Worms is like the official treaty. But no, this this keeps going. The schism would have the schism started centuries before. And there's going to be consequences from the rest of history. I mean, it's it's there. There's the schism is still in effect. Yeah, and so if you do want to learn a lot more about this, uh, I guess I'll say on the secular side, I'll I'll cover the history of Germany more, and we'll go through that evolution on the history of papacy. You can you can give us a. Uh, some foreshadowing if you want. I know this is going to come up over and over again and aspects of this. Yeah, this is definitely what we're, where we're going with this. That's why I love this episode is that many, many, many of the things that we're talking about now lead directly to this point. And I'm, I always like to show the end first to see where we're going. Yep. So that, yeah, this is good. Um, so yeah, so in that case, if you want the background of this also, then the, the upcoming History of the Papacy podcast will fit right in. So if you do want more information, um, you can find that on a to z history.com. There's the History of the Papacy or just, yeah, we're, we're both Agora Podcast Network members. And if you want to hear other affiliated shows of ours, there's uh, go to agorapodcastnetwork.com. Yeah, and my own shows are on podcastnik.com, podcast N I K. So between A to Z, and I'll, I'll also link to A to Z history.com uh, and on my website on the, in the show notes. So yeah, come and find us. We, we both hang out on Facebook, by the way. We, we chat along with hundreds of other po- uh, history podcasters, specifically in uh, some of the Facebook pages, Facebook groups. So you can, you can come find us and hang out with us. We're definitely, definitely, we don't always join talk in about. On those. 
I don't know, investiture controversy. We talk about other things. <laughs> Anything <Beer>. you can imagine. <laughs> Really, it's been a ton of fun, and I definitely think we're going to have to do this again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a feeling that when I when I started the History of Germany podcast, I had a feeling that when I get to the Holy Roman Empire, I'm going to have you on the show a lot. And uh, yeah, yeah so, so here we go. I'm sure this won't be the last time. I'm going to have a couple more questions, and I want to get some, some church background clarified for sure. There are obviously some interesting German popes out there, even some some pretty recent ones. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I have a feeling we'll we'll do this again at some point. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 